You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. It is 12 noon Pacific time on a Monday afternoon here in Santa Barbara, California. And if you can join me live, this is great. I know that eventually more people end up listening afterwards or viewing these videos or these podcasts afterwards than they do live at the time. So whether you're watching this live, if you are live, please feel free to insert a question or comment in the chat window, and we'll get to those things the very best that we can. Uh, If you're not able to join us live, that's fine. Right now, during this whole coronavirus pandemic that's around the world, uh, we're doing this twice a week, on Monday afternoons and on Thursday afternoons, both of them 12 noon Pacific time. Some of you can join us live, some of you can't, but that's fine. And our habit for these times together is I begin with a lead question, either something that somebody has sent in or something of my own choosing. And so my lead question for today is simply this, when should church meetings start again? Again, let me repeat that. When should church meetings start again? Now, pretty much over the world, over the Western world, governments have uh, asked there to be restrictions upon church meetings. And most every pastor that I know has suspended normal church meetings. Now, I want you to understand, I have phrased this question very carefully. I'm not saying when should church start again, because church has never stopped. (laughs) Church is the collection of God's people coming together for worship, the word. It's the body itself. It's not just what we do together. There's more to the church than church meetings. But church meetings are important. And I have so much love, so much respect for pastors that I know who are doing the very best that they can to reach out to their community, to uh, people that they know, and do whatever they can at this present moment to meet online, to call people up, to just stay in contact, to, to be pastors, and to be the body of Christ even when they can't meet together as normal as churches. So I'm not asking when the church can start again, because the church has never stopped. But when do church meetings start again? Because in most places uh, where this YouTube video and the podcast would go out, uh, in many, many of these places, normal church meetings have been suspended. And they're going to start up sometime or another. When? When should they? What should pastors keep in mind about this? Well, let me share with you some of my thoughts uh, on this video. Now, I want to be careful to say that I don't believe that I have the last word on this. I think this is a discussion that we have to have among God's people, that there's a lot of pastors, there's a lot of church leaders, there's a lot of congregants, there's a lot of just everyday Christians who need to weigh in on this, and it's a discussion that we need to have and a discussion that I think that we need to have with a lot of Christian love and respect for one another. So even though I don't feel like I have the final word on this, uh, I I do believe that there's some things that I want to say and things that I would like all pastors and elders and church leaders and congregants to, to keep a few things in mind. And basically, I've put them under four different headings. The first one is the longest, but there's four basic headings about what I want to talk to you about. So the first thing that I want to say is simply, number one, a principle. 
We don't look to the government for the permission to meet as the church. Again, let me repeat that. We don't look to the government for the permission to meet as a church. Now, if we decide to not meet as normally, it's because we decide to before God, not because the government makes us. Now, again, almost every church I know, almost every pastor I know, they have suspended their normal services. And I'll say this a couple times throughout this video. I think that's the right call. I think that's wise. I think it's loving. I think it's doing what we should do for our community. But fundamentally, we don't do this because we believe that the government has the authority to tell us we can or we can't meet. We believe that we have the right to listen to the government's recommendations and then decide before God as we think is correct. Now, there's a command in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, that needs to be mentioned because people bring it up in regard to this. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 says this, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, let me just say, that command is absolutely true, and I think that Christians need to respect that. Christians need to say that, in general, we are subject to the governing authorities. And so when the government makes um, building codes for our church buildings, we need to respect those. When the government says uh, that we need to do certain mandatory reporting things in our counseling, I think we need to do that. I think those are good and proper things that the government tells us to do, and that even though it may cost us some inconvenience, even though it may not be what we would instantly do ourselves, sometimes it will be it, sometimes it wouldn't be. No, we need to obey the laws and be subject to the governing authorities, just as Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 tells us. But let me say this. Though the command of Romans chapter 13, 1 and 2 is true, it's not absolutely true. And this is what I mean. God commands submission in many different spheres or areas of a life. According to the New Testament, and I'm saying this is only the New Testament, but it's certainly clear in the New Testament. According to the New Testament, the principle of authority and submission applies to the government and its citizens, to employers and employees, to husbands and wives, to parents and children, to church leaders and to congregants. Those are five that I can think of. Maybe we could think of more, but I can think of those five at least. Those are areas where God has spelled out in the New Testament some authority and submission, a structure of authority and submission. Now, in each one of those, there is some submission that is due to the authority. But in none of those spheres is the command to submit absolute. God has no absolute command to submit to any human authority. In other words, God never says, whether it's right or whether it's wrong, you submit. Whether it's sinful or whether it's godly, you submit. Whether it honors me or dishonors me, you submit. God never says that. If any human authority tells us to sin or oversteps the legitimate authority that God has given them, 
We are not bound to submit to them. As a matter of fact, we must not submit to them. As Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 19, we should obey God before man. So yes, we understand, we appreciate, we receive that God has established an order of authority and submission in at least five different areas of human life. Uh, again, a government and its citizens, employers and employees, husbands and wives, parents and children, church leaders and congregants. We understand that. But in none of those areas is the command to obey absolute. So, for example, congregant, if your church leader told you to sin, you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't do it because it's a sin before God. Does a church leader normally, a pastor or elder, we would say, normally have authority over a congregant? Yes, some level of authority, but not absolute authority. It's authority in its order before God. So under that principle, we just simply say this. The church does not look to the state for the permission to meet or to exist. Now, history often tells us that there's been a struggle between the state and the church, with each one trying to take authority over the other. Now, we're not here to take authority over the state, but even with good intentions or motives, politicians or public officials may seek to take authority that God does not give them over the church. And we need to be respectfully on guard against this. Now, let me say again, I don't want anybody to, to take this in a wrong way. I am in firm agreement with churches that have suspended normal services during this time. I think it's the right thing to do. And we do it fundamentally not out of fear, but out of love for our neighbor. But we also do not do it because we're surrendering our right to meet uh, under government control. But we think before God, it's the right thing to suspend normal services for a season. Now, the whole question is, how long does that season last? Brothers and sisters, I don't have an absolute answer for you. I think that you, pastor, elder, church leader, you need to seek the Lord. You need to listen to the warnings and the recommendations of your public health officials. But remember that you answer first before God. That's what we need to understand. Our first responsibility is before God. Do we have a responsibility before the government and before our public health officials? Yes, we do. But our first uh, submission is to God. Now, let me add something else before I move on to the second point. Also, why not error on the side of being a little too careful? Sometimes we talk about in the Christian life, erring on the side of grace. In other words, if, if you have the choice of being a little too forgiving or a little less forgiving, wouldn't it be better to err on the side of grace and be a little too forgiving? If the worst thing you had to answer for before God on the day of judgment, on the judgment seat of Christ was, well, Jesus, I was a little too forgiving. Listen, I, I think that's a better thing to have to answer to God for than being a little too unforgiving. So we talk about this idea of erring on the side of grace. In general, it's a good principle. It, it's not say that you you 
always uh, err on the side. No, but in general, it's a good principle. Now, why not apply that principle to this? When the matter is a debate over public health and safety, isn't it better to be a little too careful than a little too careless? So keep that in mind as well. Okay, so number one, we don't look to the government for the right to meet together as a church. That right is given to us by God. And if we suspend the right, we do it out of love for our neighbor as we have done these past many weeks. Number two, if someone is led to go against a governmental ordinance or recommendation, they should do it with a humble heart and as inoffensively as possible. Now, I've known of believers who have met, but they did so following all the guidelines for public health and safety. This is what they obviously wanted to communicate. We hear what our public health officials say, and we respect that. We simply also want to respect and express our right to come to the Lord's table for communion. Now, if you're going to do it, that's the right way to do it. I don't think this is any time to question the motives of our politicians or public health officials. Let's err on the side of being too generous. Now, sometimes we may question their wisdom, fair enough, but I don't think we need to question their motives. And we can say, if we are going to go against a governmental ordinance or recommendation, we need to do it with a humble heart and as inoffensively as possible. Number three, as my friend Pastor Lance Ralston wrote in an article that I read, not Every pastor will see this the same way, and we need to understand this. Uh, Romans chapter 13 is that chapter that we read before, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about having authority to government, uh, being under the authority of governmental leaders. Amen. We understand that. But we also need to pay attention to what it says in Romans chapter 14. In Romans chapter 14, Paul deals with the whole matter of Christian liberty and how there are some things in the Christian life where Christians may come to different opinions about. And, and since we may not necessarily be dealing with something that's clear-cut sin or clear-cut obedience, that we need to give liberty to each other in the body of Christ. And so we need to have some good Romans 14 respect of one another's liberty. Now, let me say as well, it's fine for us to challenge each other on these things. That's part of brotherly love and concern. If someone felt that a brother was going to open his church for meetings too soon, it's fine to challenge him about it. Challenge him about it. Go right ahead. I think that's good. I think that's honoring to God. If you think another brother is keeping his church closed for regular meetings too long, in love, challenge him about it. But realize at the end of it all, this is an area where pastors and church leaders may come to different conclusions. It may be based on different circumstances. It may be based on different leadings of the Lord. Let's be very careful about judging one another, even though it's fine for us to respectfully and love to challenge one another. That's some brotherly iron striking iron, and there should be well placed for that in the Christian life and among church leaders. All right, now let me add this. Number four, 
And I think this one is important. Any pastor who goes against a governmental ordinance or recommendation should diligently search his heart to see that he isn't doing it out of a spirit of vain glory or a desire to attract attention. Let me tell you, that is never of the Lord. Pastor, if you're making decisions for your church, especially regarding such matters that might impact public health and safety, don't you dare make those decisions because you want to attract attention for yourself, because you want some kind of publicity or personal glory. Never. That's That should be rebuked. No. If you're going to go, if you feel that God would lead you to go against a governmental ordinance or recommendation, diligently search your heart. Make sure that you're not doing it just to get personal glory, not just to get publicity for yourself. It's easy to do the right thing in a wrong way. And so let me just add this finally. Congregations, listen, those of us who are just regular, everyday churchgoers, I think we should really pray for our church leaders and trust our church leaders. Really be led of the Lord of this. The coming months are going to be, I think, filled with some controversy over this subject because some pastors are invariably going to be on the leading edge of let's open up our church for church meetings right away. There's other pastors who are going to be way more cautious. We understand there can be a difference of opinion. Let's make sure we're seeking the Lord, that we're not judging one another, and that we're not doing things out of a spirit of personal glory or vain glory. No, we're not in this to attract attention to ourselves, but only to lift up the name of Jesus Christ and to point out the obvious truth that the church of Jesus Christ is an anvil that has worn out many hammers. It's going to survive this just fine as long as Christians and pastors understand that we answer first to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we respect our government. We respect our public health officials. But but we do that after first understanding that the church belongs to Jesus Christ. It doesn't belong to the state, and it doesn't belong to the pastor or the elders or the church leaders. It belongs fundamentally to Jesus Christ, and church leaders should be seeking the Lord for his mind, his will, for a particular congregation. Well, I hope that's helpful for you folks. Uh, Let me look through our chat window here and uh, take a look at whatever questions may have come in. God bless you, Lupe and Karina and Ruth. Um, Ruth asks the questions. God bless you, Ruth. It's always great to hear from you. Can you also address the difference between our situation now and countries where Christians meet secretly because Christianity is forbidden? Okay, well, Ruth, that's a great question. Now, There is an overlap because there may be, in both situations, laws that say Christians cannot meet. Now, one thing that needs to be examined is whether or not those laws are something permanent or something temporary. But again, I just get back to the idea that Christians who choose not to meet 
because they agree with the government's assessment that it's better for the community, for public health. It's an expression of loving your neighbor, not to mean that is entirely a different thing than governments that prohibit Christianity from meeting simply because they're against Christianity. So I just think we need to make the distinction between the two. It is possible that governments could command that Christians don't meet and say that it has to do with public safety when really it doesn't. But I think that that's something that would have to be looked through and really demonstrated on an individual basis from situation to situation. So again, the principle goes back to this. Fundamentally, the church is not under the command, so to speak, of any state or government. It's under the command of Jesus Christ. We do want to submit to governmental authorities, but always first to the Lord. So if they were to outlaw Christian meetings uh, indefinitely or until further notice or all this, I, I think those are things that need to seriously be looked at. But I think that's very different from a temporary ban, a temporary saying, we're not going to meet together because we agree with the assessment of our public health officials. I guess that's basically I would say it, Ruth. Good question. Joanne says, we're taking precautions. This is a time to share the gospel with the world. I believe that revival will come out of the situation. Broadcasting Jesus is the opportunity. Awesome. Yes, Joanne, I want to agree with you. Um, it's amazing to see how many people are being reached because God's word and God's message is going out onto channels that it hasn't been going out to before. There are so many churches that are doing ministry online that really weren't doing it before. And it's a wonderful thing to see that God's word is growing out in ways that it hasn't before. Make no mistake about it. God can, and I believe he will, use this whole coronavirus, this whole COVID-19, whatever thing you want to call it. He's going to use this for good and for his glory. We just need to seek the Lord and be responsive to his will. Betta says, in what way should the church be prepared post-COVID-19? Well, Betta, I think that's a great question. How can we be prepared post-COVID-19? I think one thing we need to do is be ready to, to realize that there's going to be a lot of people who are still vulnerable, even when many people are able to get back. In other words, in a congregation, there may be high-risk people who are not able to come back to church meetings even when the church begins to gather together again in a normal fashion. We need to continue ministry and keep them in our mind and reach out to them the very best that we can. Uh, so that's an important follow-up. There's going to be a big economic impact from this. Uh, from people who have lost their jobs, people who have lost income, people who have really had to push a restart on things again for themselves economically. That's going to be a big thing to give attention to. So there are definite ways that we need to do this, but I think that we need to take the most opportunity we can while people are now thinking about God and eternity and life and death and priorities in a way that they haven't because... When this is over, people are going to get back to normal, and I'm putting air quotes around normal, because I don't know if it is normal, but normal life as soon as they can. 
And, and so we need to take advantage of opportunities while we have them. Jim so uh, shares, the pastor who wrote The Blessed Life teaches that Jesus is God's tithe. I've never read or heard of this before. What's your thought on this teacher? Well, Jim, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. I don't really get the concept of Jesus being God's tithe, except if somebody would connect it like this. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. If they want to talk about Jesus being an expression of the giving heart of God the Father, that makes sense to me. But to call it a tithe seems strange, because let's remember what a tithe is. A tithe is 10%. And when Jesus came, Jesus gave it all. He didn't hold anything back. Jesus didn't give 10%. Oh, aren't you happy about that? Aren't you praising God that Jesus didn't give 10% on the cross, but he gave everything on the cross? What a beautiful, powerful thing that is. And so I, I don't know if it's so healthy to think of Jesus as being God's tithe, but if somebody wants to express Jesus being an expression of the giving heart of God the Father, well, then that makes sense to me. I hope that helps you out there, Jim. Joshua says, what would you say to a church who is implementing first century discipleship methods? Uh, for example, saying every Christian must have their own disciples who follow them around, live together, work together, etc." Okay, uh, Joshua, that's an interesting question. Let me read it again, just so people can catch it. What would you say to a church who is implementing first century discipleship methods saying every Christian must have their own disciples who follow them around, live together, work together, etc. Okay, Joshua, I think what that's doing is that's misunderstanding something. That was the discipleship that Jesus used with the 12, those who were his 12 disciples. Now, that was not an unusual thing in the first century. That was sort of how rabbis in Jesus's day, trained rabbinical students. They followed him around in sort of a traveling discipleship school, a rabbinical school. But that wasn't the pattern of discipleship for each and every Christian, especially as you get into the book of Acts. We never see that pattern being used in the book of Acts, where, well, never. You could say that Paul and Barnabas replicated that pattern, by having a small group of disciples that traveled with them. Uh, Timothy traveled with Paul, Luke traveled with Paul, Titus traveled with Paul, you know, uh, others along the way. But, but that was actually a very small proportion of the disciples in Philippi, the disciples in Corinth, the disciples in Ephesus, the disciples in Rome, all over the first century church. So this was not the common practice of Christian discipleship in the New Testament church. It was practiced by Jesus and his disciples, okay, which is fine. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to do. It's possible to see how it could be easily abused, how it could easily turn into something that is excessive authority and control, but not necessarily, of course. Um, so I just think that's erroneous to think that this was the normal practice of New Testament Christianity. It was what Jesus did with his disciples 
but we have no reason to believe that that was replicated in discipleship throughout the New Testament. In other words, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached and uh, thousands of people repented and became disciples of Jesus Christ, there's nothing to indicate that they all split up into small groups and followed around someone as a rabbi, as a master for three years, just like Jesus did with his disciples. So again, I, I think that's mistaken in thinking that that was the pattern of New Testament discipleship. Great question, though, Joshua. Joanne says, the virus affects everyone. We need to pray for our first responders and healthcare organizations. Amen. We need to pray very broadly. There are uh, believers who are um, in all sorts and all sorts of people, the first responders, medical personnel, uh, people who are in the grocery industry, restaurant workers, people doing public transportation, people doing uh, automotive care, whatever you want to say. There's so many things that are essential for the operation of our society. We need to be grateful in a new way for the things that we often take for granted. Richard says, I am concerned we are more concerned about our personal sovereignty as American citizens than the sovereignty of God over our lives. I see a lot of anger, arrogance, and vulgarity in the church. Well, Richard, you're bringing up a valid point here. There's a difference between saying and understanding we are under God's authority and taking authority unto ourselves. And this is something that we dare not do. We dare not say that we are the authority. We need to do everything we can with a clean heart before God to the best of our ability to say God is our authority. And again, uh, those who want to use this as an excuse for the operations of uh, just fleshly, you know, autonomy, independence, they'll do it. Um, but it doesn't erase the principle in itself. But Richard, I think that's a valid concern. Um, Conception Productions says, what is your take on God having a heavenly council? Have you heard of this teaching? Your thoughts? Okay. Um, I have heard of this concept of God having a heavenly council. Uh, I haven't researched it very much, but the research that I've done to this point has not been persuasive. I would just say this. If anybody feels like they have come across the best presentation of this that they've found, uh, you can leave it as a comment on this uh, email, on this um, video, and I'll look at it, um, leave the link to it, uh, because I I'm interested in hearing the best argument I can for it. But the idea that God, now, I believe that there is an audience of angelic beings that God does things for, and in some limited respects with, we have an indication of this a few times in the scripture, but the idea that God runs the universe by committee with a heavenly council, I'm, I'm not seeing that. Uh, so if anybody has a recommendation on, this is a great presentation, the best presentation of this idea, leave it in the comments of this video. And uh, I, I hope to look it up and maybe do a little more research on it. Thank you there. Uh, Karina says, blessings. What happens with salvation if a Christian suffers a brain injury that changes his or her behavior or perception? 
or with Alzheimer's patients that have no way to accept Jesus as Savior? Thanks. Well, Karina, you're dealing with an excellent question that really has to do with the concept of limited capability for any individual, whether some uh, human being has limited capability because uh, they are simply an infant. Maybe it's simply because they have some kind of uh, accident or injury. Maybe it's some kind of birth defect or difficulty. Um, on and on, we can think of some all different kind of reasons why people have diminished capability. And all we can say is that the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And God takes these things into account. God is a righteous judge. He's a fair judge. And he takes these things into account. I'm not saying that it settles the issue, but God would obviously take such things into account as he makes his judgment in all the earth. Um, I, I, I remember that phrase in the book of Psalms, that the Lord pities us as a father pities his children. He's aware that we are only dust, and he has a concern for us on that. God knows the frailty of the human condition, and he takes that into account, whatever his judgments are. At the end of it all, we're going to see every judgment that the Lord has made, and that it was true, and that it was right, and it was according not only to his wisdom, but to his love and his righteousness. And we will be convinced that the judge of all the earth has done right, taking into account a diminished capacity whatever the cause of the diminished capacity is. Um, Richard says, there's a lot of vainglory attention grabbing a rebellious pride in the pastorate right now, and it disturbs me. Well, Richard, it's true. Anytime that we see that vainglory and attention grabbing and re rebellious pride, um, we need to pray that God would deal with it. Um, God bless bold pastors. God bless pastors who boldly lead the work and do it without fear, but they need to do it without a spirit of vainglory, uh, without a desire to attract attention unto themselves. Um, God bless you. Let me take a few more questions here. Dennis says, my experience has been that most people call themselves pastor, don't have a clue what it means. Well, Dennis, we understand that pastor fundamentally means shepherd, and a pastor needs to fundamentally have a, a concern for the feeding and care for the flock of God, and uh, it should never be forgotten among pastors. Um, let's see, let me continue on here, skipping over a few. Uh, Ruth says you can't post links, but you can type a URL. Yes, that's good. Or maybe just give a specific thing to search for on the internet. Um, Darren says um, more and more people are getting chipped. Is this the beginning of the mark of the beast? Or at least we see that people are being conditioned for it. Darren, yes. I, I think we've discussed this before. We need to remember that the book of Revelation presents the mark of the beast as something that is connected with the worship of the Antichrist and some kind of allegiance to his system. So I, I think what if people are getting chipped or whatever, I, I don't think that that is immediately the mark of the beast, but it's something that could lead to it, and it needs to be paid attention to without being an alarmist or having uh, you know, uh, some kind of uh, paranoia about it. But it is something just to keep an eye on and to pay attention to. 
Betha says, does Satan still have access to God's throne to accuse us, like in the story of Job or Zechariah? Um, Betha, I would say yes. Um, There's a little bit of disagreement among Bible students and commentators on this. Um, It would seem to me that at the present time, Satan still does have access to heaven to accuse the brethren. Um, it, It also understands that Satan has access to the earth. It calls him the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age. The, the now age. So it, it would seem that that Satan himself does have this access to uh, heaven and earth presently, and that that has not yet been restricted to him, even though I would say there is some disagreement about it. Um, thank you, Conception Productions, uh, for that recommendation about the unseen realm. Um, I, I'll take a look at that. Um, and just a few thanks and uh, blessings. And so with that, we'll end today. Um, Listen, thank you so much for tuning in. Please remember to keep up in prayer the work of the Bible commentary of Enduring Word. I have to say, it is a tremendous blessing for me to get to do what I do. I'm very grateful for it. I don't want to take it for granted. Um, I have the privilege of being able to study God's Word and to talk about God's Word with a lot of different people in a lot of different ways, and it's a great privilege to do so. It's a privilege to be with you here on this YouTube channel. But if you need some Bible resources, one among many Bible resources you can check out is my commentary. I've got a verse-by-verse commentary through the entire Bible that you can find at EnduringWord.com. It's also available on Blue Letter Bible, blb.org. The Blue Letter Bible is a tremendous Bible resource that I highly recommend to people. And so thank you for joining me, for tuning in today. And uh, please keep this ministry and my own work up in prayer. And I'll remember to pray for you, our YouTube audience. Uh, Don't be shy about subscribing, clicking for notifications, all that stuff that people tell you to do. But I'm really glad that you could join me today. And God bless you. Thank you for your prayers. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.